back let's continue to compliment people that deserve to be complimented and we want to go back and talk about again some of the great work they're doing over at McClatchy I was certainly not aware of the fact and you probably weren't either dear listener that uh, California gave women the right to vote ahead of the federal authorities nice piece in the viewpoints section of the B a few weeks back by Rebecca LeVay from the Department of Communications at California State University Sacramento and Michelle McCormick past president of the Sacramento League of Women Voters and frequent host of the California Channel's election season free airtime project. Note of the piece to the B, just 100 years ago this month, California's male citizens narrowly agreed to enfranchise their girlfriends, wives, mothers, sisters, and female neighbors. When the last yes vote was counted, California by just 3,587 votes among 247,000 had doubled the number of women voters in America. California had defeated a similar measure in 1896. The 1911 victory made the Golden State just one of six states to let women vote. It would be another nine years before ratification of the 19th Amendment achieved national suffrage, ending a 72-year campaign. You know, California, under its progressive governor, Hiram Johnson, uh, really did lead the way in in electoral reform and a lot of other issues regarding voting rights. And we're going to see if we can't bring Kim Alexander of the the California Voter Foundation to come talk about some of these issues. We've mentioned that before, but we have not made the necessary arrangements with Kim. The fault is is my own. The initiative process in particular has come under heavy fire of late for uh, being changed and misused, and we'll talk about that with Kim, along with the fact that apparently uh, Jerry Brown just signed a bill that will move all of our initiative votes to November elections. Up till now, you could vote on initiatives in either June or November elections, and we now face the prospect of having maybe 18 different ballot initiatives in the November election. And doesn't that sound like fun? We've complimented Matt Weiser for his work in the B on numerous occasions, mostly related to water issues, but he had a great piece last month on how the logging industry is being subsidized and how that's being uh, examined by people who may wish to um, see if we can raise our local tax revenues here in California. If we bring Matt back on the show, we're going to ask him about this in detail. I read a piece years ago talking about, not, not about state, uh, state subsidies, but about federal renting of ranch land across the U.S. And I think the stat at that time was that uh, the entire amount of earnings by all of the federal land, which is leased to ranchers in all 50 states, amounted to something like $30 million, about what you might get from a large office building in Manhattan. I don't know if that's true, but I'd like to find out. Anyway, again, good work over at the B. And I, and I don't know, Mr. McGillan, whether we talked about this last June, but if we didn't, we'll talk about it again. There's a nice piece by Carlos Alcala about how the American River Parkway backers were marking their 50th, their golden anniversary. Last June, 100 people showed up at the William Pond Recreational Area on uh, the American River Bikeway to, uh, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Save the American River Association, in which time uh, there was a monument unveiled to Mr. William B. Pond. He was the county's first par- park director, and he's often referred to as the father of the American River Parkway. 
Sorry to realize that Mr. Pond passed away in 2009, and we never brought him on this radio program to talk about uh, the tremendous achievement that is the American River Parkway. Urban planners come from all over the world to see how it is that in, uh, in the, the Sacramento urban area, they were able to preserve a riparian habitat running smack through the middle of an urban environment. Maybe we'll bring a person mentioned in the article, William Griffith, to talk about this. He noted that he had wanted to see the parkway as a place that protected wildlife back in the 50s, and he recalled commuting three miles to work on the parkway by kayak because it was faster than driving. This warrants further investigation. And we're happy to report there is some good news with American Waterways. Uh, the Economist magazine, October 1st issue, talked about how removing old dams is benefiting America's rivers economically and certainly ecologically. In this first decade of the 21st century, we've removed 410 dams across America, which is, of course, just a small portion of what are estimated to be more than 84,000 dams in America. The rate of removal is growing. Apparently more than twice as many dams were removed between 2000 and 2010 than in any other decade. The Economist notes that many of these dams are relics of a bygone age. They're holdovers from the Industrial Revolution, where ponds were built to power mills long defunct for industries that have long vanished. Magazine notes that America's dams are as diverse as the waterways they block. Some, about 2,400, generate hydropower, but most do not. And notes that dams are removed when the costs of maintaining them and the risks they pose outweigh the benefits they provide. But of course, the precise costs and goals of removal vary. One main reason to remove them is public safety. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, America has 15,000 dams whose failure could result in loss of life, roughly 30% of which have not been inspected in the past five years. Well, shoot, maybe those inspectors are being sent in to look at pot dispensaries rather than concern themselves with dams that might fail and kill people. Of course, when you remove dams, you've boosted the recreational opportunities along what are now again going to be rivers, including whitewater rafting and fishing rivers. And of course, uh, this is very good for aquatic life. Now, two months earlier, the, uh, the Economist, along with the L.A. Times, revealed some rather startling news about rivers in Southern California. And, and yes, there are some. In particular, there's what used to be a rather beautiful stream running through Los Angeles called the Los Angeles River. In July, uh, tickets were issued for the Los Angeles River Adventure. Apparently, there was a route through the Sepulveda Basin Flood Control Channel where customers along a three-mile stretch of river where the water's 10 to 15 feet deep, and there anyway, where it's edged by uh, willows and sycamores. Apparently, seasoned kayakers and naturalists trained in swift water rescue operations were allowed to, uh, to go through the area. This, this is something to be encouraged. An awful lot of the L.A. River is a giant culvert. You've seen this in innumerable movies where people are driving cars along the slanted uh, cement walls. I think they had a memorable scene in Repo Man, not to mention, I, I believe, The Terminator. Economists noted that back in the 1980s when Lewis McAdams founded the Friends of the Los Angeles River, a nonprofit organization, he said that my first job was trying to convince people that the river existed. The magazine notes that once it emerges from the San Fernando Valley to run through downtown L.A. and various industrial cities before spilling into the Pacific near the port of Long Beach, the river is really a pathetic trickle composed almost entirely of treated sewage. The river got tamed and channeled into this concrete culvert because it meandered up a lot. Apparently, when the Spanish arrived in the 18th century, the L.A. River 
uh, changed its course often, sometimes flowing in the Pacific near today's Santa Monica and turning the entire area into a marshy wetland, which was, frankly, not good for real estate developers. The largest Indian settlement in the area and where they put the subsequent Spanish Pueblo were near today's downtown, where it was somewhat elevated and safe from floods. And apparently the Friends of the Los Angeles River is just one of several organizations that's taking interest in uh, reviving the L.A. River. Last year, the federal government declared it navigable, which has bureaucratic benefits for those who want to clean it up. Anyway, this is one more thing we're going to take a closer look at in the future. Pretty, pretty cool story, actually. Let's do a few science items. Great little piece in New Scientist magazine about research done by Stephanie King at the University of St. Andrews in the U.K., and her colleagues, they monitored 179 pairs of wild bottlenose dolphins off the Florida coast between 1988 and 2004. And of these, 10 were seen to copy each other's signature whistles, which the dolphins make to identify themselves to others. This copying took place when a pair became separated, which led King to speculate that the dolphins were trying to get back together, and they were mimicking other animals' whistles as a way of calling them by name. Pretty fascinating idea, but it did prompt new scientists to cite that, uh, that viral video, which is available on YouTube. You know the one. It starts out with the chipmunk. You know, if you've never seen that Alan, Alan, Alan video, go, go look it up on YouTube. It is, it is just hilarious. And it turns out it may have more truth in it than any of us knew. Another headline article from the news from New Scientist that I cannot resist. Article from September third about uh, where the Higgs boson may still reside, in terms of uh, what its mass might be. They've eliminated various areas where we're going to find this strange particle, but uh, I just love the way the article was titled. It said, "Don't panic about the missing Higgs for now." So please, if you're experiencing a great deal of anxiety about the fact that the Higgs boson still remains <laughs> missing, well. Don't fear. Physicists think they still may get it to pop up. And uh, in an era of ever more specialized science, it's nice to know that uh, the amateur can still make a contribution. The Economist Science Section, and by the way, The Economist Magazine has a wonderful science section on a weekly basis. They noted that amateur astronomers uh, are able to join the ranks of planet hunters and to help uh, astronomers classify galaxies as seen by the Hubble telescope. Amateurs also have a role to play in looking out, looking for interesting asteroids and monitoring what's going on on the surface of the sun. If any of this interests you, you may want to go on the web and involve yourself in what's called Planet Hunters, wherein amateurs are able to search for extrasolar planets from the data being sent back by the Kepler spacecraft. It's apparently a group set up by the good people at Oxford and Yale universities that links together 40,000 participants who can take a look at the data and try and pick up those little drops in, uh, in the light being received from these stars that uh, may show us that planets are orbiting them. I gather this is something one can do on one's home computer. The problem here is that apparently computers are very good at looking at things quickly, but they have trouble sometimes in making some qualitative assessments that it turns out human beings can do very easily. If you run the data being received from some of these stars and you watch them for variable brightness, people are able to spot abnormalities much more easily than the computers can. Nevertheless, this Planet Hunters effort grew up out of Galaxy Zoo, which was set up in 2007 to help researchers classify galaxies spotted by the Hubble. This is an area, again, that computers seem to have a great deal of trouble with. 
whereas people can look at them and classify them at a snap. Interesting stuff. I certainly hope that some of you will participate in this, my dear listener. And here's one area where video game players may actually be able to make a meaningful contribution to society. Apparently, a molecular mystery that may help scientists bring us closer to a cure for AIDS had stumped experts for years. When it was put before the public, video game players solved it in less than 10 days. Biochemists have long sought to map a molecular structure of a particular enzyme that comes from an AIDS-like virus so they could stop it from spreading. But figuring out how in 3D that, uh, what that molecular structure would be turns out to be a little tricky. So people at the University of Washington got the idea that the project could be turned into an online game where people are told, okay, here's the rules of how a molecule will fold up. These are rules rooted in chemistry and physics. Participants were asked to try and figure out how the molecule would shape itself up. Apparently 57,000 video gamers, many of them completely non-scientists, joined together to achieve this breakthrough, which is pretty cool stuff, making this biochemical mystery a, a kind of a video game, like here's the rules, how do you solve it? Great stuff. All right, and... From our science file, we have one very curious article worth mentioning. July 9th edition of New Scientist magazine, our favorite science magazine, titled Givers of Life by Steve Nichol. Article notes that how, according to historical accounts, the oceans are really a pale shadow of their former glory. There are numerous reports of how the oceans used to be teeming with various forms of life. But a look at how whales fit into all of this reveals some... uh, curious facts. The article notes that we pretty much killed off most of the ocean's whales, but uh, with fewer whales eating other animals and eating shrimp and things, you'd think that uh, there may be more productivity, but in fact, uh, the opposite seems to be true. Steve Steve Nichol notes that in large parts of the ocean, the growth of plants is limited by a lack of iron in the water, which has prompted some various harebrained schemes of how we can combat uh, Global warming by seeding the oceans with iron and seeing a big bloom of phytoplankton to fix the atmospheric CO2 into uh, biologic materials. This article notes that it may be that uh, large animals like whales were playing a larger role in fertilizing different parts of the ocean than we have appreciated. One startling aspect may be that as animals move through various temperature layers in the water and they move a little bit of water with them in doing so, this may be playing a major role in circulating different temperature currents and layers in the oceans, which in turn may further accentuate the role that animals may have in moving nutrients around. This is pretty interesting stuff. They've done some studies of, like, say, humpback whales in the Gulf of Maine diving down deep, harvesting animals from below, like squid and fish, then defecating near the surface. It turns out that uh, studies are showing that The whales may be releasing more nitrogen at the surface than flows in from all of the local rivers. Down in the southern oceans, where there's not a lot of iron blowing in from dust, it turns out that uh, the iron that's present in those ecosystems may be basically in the bodies of the krill themselves. Looking back at historical records, it appears that when there were many, many more whales down harvesting krill in that area, there were also more masses of these crustaceans. So there may be kind of a positive feedback cycle in play. Again, very interesting stuff, which certainly warrants more research.
And some oceanic research that's a bit more disturbing was revealed last week. Apparently, Chris Goldfinger, a marine geologist at Oregon State University, took a look at the ocean floor off the northern California and southern Oregon coasts to reveal, based on the records of massive landslides due to earthquakes down on the seafloor, that, um, well, the region's been hit over the past 10,000 years quite frequently, to the point where they are saying there's a one in three chance that another could strike again within the next 50 years. Goldfinger and colleagues found... um, found evidence of 19 monster quakes with a magnitude of 9 or more that have struck along the northern Cascadia zone within the past 10,000 years. Keep in mind that the recent earthquake off Japan was about magnitude 9, but the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906, which leveled the city, of course with help from the fires that came afterwards, was only magnitude 7.9. This really is kind of scary stuff. In addition to those 19 quakes of 9 or more, Japan, uh, Japan magnitude quakes. They found 22 that were uh, in the 8 to 8.3 range. Again, bigger than the 06 quake. So that's over 40 very big shakes in the past 10,000 years based on undersea landslides. Hmm. You may want to give this com- some consideration if you're thinking about buying some beachfront property up in Crescent City. Anyway, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.